listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And i got to tell you something, people. Uh, my guest today, I met him through some business dealings, and he's, uh, he's fascinating. And, you know, I'm a big Philadelphia sports fan, and you all know that. And if you follow mascots, he was the original Philly fanatic, so he's like the OG. I mean, seriously, like, the, the fanatic, you can honestly say, is the goat of mascots. And, you know, you can say the chicken man, but he disappeared, and the mascot... The, the, Fanatic was much better, but he stopped being the fanatic. Now he's a uh, thought leader, speaks to a lot of people. He also creates mascots, and he has so much other stuff going on. And my guest is Dave Raymond. How you doing, Dave? Hey, Steve. How are you? So my job is to make you hip? Do you know me? You and I are going to fail very miserably on that first promise, but I'll do my best. I I always do that. To take the onus off me. Because if I say, you know, hey, I'm not hip, you know, it, basically it says, it makes me look hip if someone's not hip. But you're a hip guy. Most of my guests are hip. But every once in a while when you get someone who's, like, not hip or boring, it makes me look that much better. <laughs> All right. Well, I could, I may be helpful on either of both those. So at the end, we'll decide if I, if I fulfilled any of those promises. Okay. Now, I'm going to start from the beginning. Because, you know, people... People really don't think what goes into being a mascot. And people think, you know, people always ask, you know, well, how did you get into mascot? Like when, when I did comedy, how did you get into comedy? Were you a funny kid? What were you like as a kid? Well, I was, um, you know, I grew up in a small town in Newark, Delaware, and I was uh, uh, just absolutely uh, immersed in athletics. Uh, you know, if you talk about, uh, I, I used it later in my life when I had a relationship with a young lady, I had to explain to her that it is not just a game uh, in terms of Delaware football, where my dad was a head coach. And so at my earliest memories, Delaware football wasn't just athletics. It wasn't just a game. It was our life. Um, and thank goodness he was good at it because he didn't lose us uh, very often. And, or I should say, like he would say, his teams never lost very often. So all I, as a kid, I just wanted to play sports. Um, that's all I cared about. Uh, when I went to college, all I wanted to do was uh, play football for Delaware, which um, fortunately, you know, uh, when I was a kid, I didn't realize that I was small and slow. Uh, so, so this was going to be a challenge to play football at a, at a, a big college like Delaware. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, that's all I remember was, was everything that we did was, was uh, about sports and had that uh, overlay. And it was a beautiful, wonderful life um, uh, you know, I, I'll age myself. It was definitely a leave it to beaver existence, uh, you know, all the way through through college. And, and then, you know, the, the beautiful uh, situation with the Phillies came right after that. Well, I got to ask you, you know, if you're playing as a kid, you're playing sports. Now, your, your father, Tommy Raymond, is legendary. I mean, he's, you know, the stadium is named after him. He's a legend. What was it like when you would go to a team game and the coaches would know who your dad was? Would they sit there and go, we better, we better be really good because his, his dad's like the best. Yeah. Well, I listen, the one thing that starts, and everybody has this experience with their parents at some point, that you, you look at your parents, if, you, if you're lucky enough to have um, you know, a good upbringing, you look at your parents as infallible. And in the case of my father, oh, you know, his players love him. And, and certainly there were many that do, but the, the older I got, the more I realized by listening and hearing some things that not everybody really loves uh, Tubby the way you do or the way you think they did. So that was one of my first 
aha moments was that, you know, if you were playing, most likely you were happy with the coaches. Uh, and then when I, when I played as a young kid and they were coaching me, they were excited with the fact that maybe Tubby would come to the games. And again, I didn't learn that until later. So that's really my first understanding was uh, when dad showed up. And unfortunately, you know, this was, I had to share him with the University of Delaware. He, you know, when I was playing, so, so he was coaching. So it was hard. He didn't see me play much uh, high school football a couple of times because we had a night game on a Friday, he was able to see me play. But for most of my career, baseball and in football, I, I didn't get to see him much. But when he showed up, yeah, everybody was minding their P's and Q's, let's put it that way. So you go to college, then how does the whole path to the Fanatics start? I, I believe you were an intern. I mean, what was your major in college? What did you want to do? I mean, no one graduates and goes, hey, hey, I got my BS in mascot. I got a Bachelor of Science in being a mascot. What did you... Uh, how did this all start? Because it's fascinating because, you know, I'm, I'm 57. I knew who the Chicken Man was. That was it for mascots. That's all we knew. I mean, there might have been some Bush League one or the college ones, but, you know, no one has an idea of what a mascot, that you're going to become a mascot. How did the whole path, how did this happen? Well, it, it, it came from the fact that I didn't take my education seriously. <laughs> but that's that um, disinterest in actually uh, getting an education <laughs> led me to the fanatic. It might not surprise some, but I went to school to, to uh, and I was looking for a degree and my dad and mom suggested get a business degree. It'll give you flexibility. Well, my freshman year when I studied for my first ex accounting exam for four days and then I got a D on the accounting exam, I ran right to the registrar's office and I changed my major to physical education without telling my dad. Well, meanwhile, this kind of identifies this lack of understanding about education. I forgot that my father just happened to be my my uh, my counselor in terms of looking what, and so he of course got a notice that I changed my major. He got me on the phone and said, what the heck are you doing? I said, dad, I, I don't want to go into business. I want to be a football coach. That's all I care about. Um, and that's when the conversation started where he said, listen, I, you want to be a football coach, that's great, but you better understand that there's no way that you're going to be at the same institution for 50 years. My dad was at Delaware for his entire, well, 95% of his coaching career. He was at Delaware, and he came as the head baseball coach and a backfield coach. And then when I, by the time I was seven, he had become the head coach. So he goes, there's no way you're going to replicate it. You're going to get fired. You'll have to move your family around, and maybe you'll get lucky to find a right job where they, where you're good at it, which I think you could be. But in the meantime, you've got two more years for your graduate. Why don't I help you get a job with the Phillies? I know the owners. They're, so this is like Malcolm Gladwell's access. You know, I, uh, I'm an outlier because my dad knows the Phillies of, uh, ownership, of course, that he could get me a job. And so I did. I got a job, 76. It's the bicentennial, so the all-star games in Philly. And if you know anything about intern responsibilities, a major event like that, there was an enormous amount of work for me to do. And I was getting asked to do all kinds of great things. I was getting asked to, to all kinds of, of things like cleaning the bathroom. So I was doing everything. And I got done with that first summer. And then into my second year in 77, I, I was enamored with the idea that I could actually get paid, Steve, to work for my baseball team. You know, it's the only other thing besides Delaware football were, was Philadelphia Phillies. And my dad started in baseball. So that it was like, you know, oh my gosh, I don't have to worry about getting fired uh, in term, because I'm losing too much. I, I can get this job. So 
my only fear then was it was a two-year internship and I had another year before I graduated. So I thought the Phillies were going to say, hey, graduate, and then maybe we'll have something for you. Instead, they called me and said, do you want to come back for a third year, for a third summer? And I'm like, of course, yes, I do. What do you want me to do? They said, they said go to New York and get fitted for the costume. I'm like, what do you mean? And I started to protest. Now, you know, I'm on the phone. I suddenly get my prayer answered. They're going to give me another summer. I, I, and then I'll graduate when I'm still working for them. I'm thinking this will be fantastic. And they said, you know, go to New York, get fitted for the costume. I said, wait, I, is this for like a prom-? They said, David, just go to New York and get fitted for the costume. Okay. And that's, that's how it started. So it's so funny because I'm just thinking about it. When I was living in L.A., uh, my 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 brush with being a mascot was um, my friend was doing this marketing gig, and there was a soup company called Walnut Acres, and they had people dress up. If you they had people dressed like chefs that paid twenty two fifty an hour, then they had people dressed like a carrot, a tomato, and a corn, and that paid thirty seven fifty an hour. So I was like. To my buddy, sign me up. So I dressed as a piece of corn. Half the kids thought I was a mutant ninja turtle. And I just gave soup to people. And the best part about it was it was gourmet soup. And we would go to those uh, farmer's markets. And we would sit there, me and the and the corn, I mean, me and the carrot would walk around. And we would, we would barter with people. So I would come back with like, I'd give them like five jars of soup. And I'd come back with like a filet. Or, or, and it was amazing because so, mascots had the pull because everybody is gravitated towards them. So, so now when you go up to get fitted for the costume, do you have any idea what it's going to look like, how big it's going to be? I mean, you're thinking it could just be, you know, you could be like the Phil and Philly, those two mascots. I mean, what, are, what were you thinking? What would, how did they measure you? What was going on? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Phil and Phyllis because I, you know, I mean, like everybody, the only experience I had getting in costume was Halloween. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what that meant. And I had no idea of the range of possibilities. I just had a couple of things in mind. I mean, I did a, I dressed as Snoopy for Bradford's ha- Bradford House Restaurants, my first real job, where I worked as a short order cook. And they had costumes delivered to have this weekend where Bucky Bradford, and they just happened to have Snoopy, do you want to be in one of these costumes? I said, yeah. And they, they said, well, here's the Snoopy costume. And I said, what do you, what should I wear underneath it? And uh, so this is when I was 16 years old. And they said, well, as little as possible. So I had my T-shirt and my tidy whiteies on, right? Now, this was a Snoopy costume that had, you know, the big oval eyes with just a little screen, a little white paint on that screen. And I was in the costume for all of 10 minutes. And I was all excited. People were, oh, it's Snoopy, it's Snoopy. And I see this little four-year-old girl come running up to me and she wants to hug and I, I scoop her up and I pick her up and I lifted her up at my eye level to, so she could kiss the nose. I gave her a hug and I sat her down and she ran back and I could hear her yell, Mommy, Mommy, I saw Noopy's underwear. Because she looked through the eyes and could see down to my underwear and I, I was mortified, right? So this was the only experience I had. So I go to New York and the woman who was running the studio was one of Jim Henson's original designers. Because God love him, Bill Giles, my boss's boss, he, when he got serious about this stuff, he did it right. He called, got Jim Henson on the phone, and Jim Henson referred him to, uh, to Bonnie. And I walked in, they, they measured me stem to stern and said, get out of here. And I go, wait, wait, wait. It was like Geppetto's puppet studio. 
And I said, well, where's the where's the costume? They said, we're going to build it. Here is a drawing of what it's going to look like. And I took that drawing home on the, the train from New York, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be a Muppet. They're going to pay me to be a Muppet. And I, I, I couldn't wait to get into the office to show my fellow intern, Steve, you know, because you know what, we're working for the team, we're, we're goofing around, and then I realize I'm going to get paid to stay at the games, and I get to run around in this costume, and I'm showing it to these hardcore Philadelphia folks, and they looked at me like I had three heads, and I went, what? And they grabbed the drawing away from me and said, yeah, you're going to be a Muppet, and your job is to entertain the same people that have booed Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. They're going to kill you! <laughs> so, I'm like, I'm, and I'm like, oh yeah, duh. I mean, I just, I raised my hand because I'm going to get this job back. That's all I thought about. Um, and you know, it wasn't until I, I finally, you know, that that costume was not finished until the very night I was supposed to wear it because of some delays. And that morning, the costume arrives at Veterans Stadium. I tried it on. I went out. It was a little bit before batting practice. Tony Taylor, first Phillies employee, first Phillies. Um, team member he was a coach a, th- a third base coach at the time to actually have his picture taken with a fanatic i have it right up on my wall here and um, and he was like oh this is great you know everybody's laughing and so i i take it off and i realize i don't know what i'm doing no one's told me i don't even know i know the game's going to start and i'm supposed to come out but there was no plan which was not like the phillies they usually they would plan to have two planning meetings to give away a trophy so i started then I got fearful because I'm on the lamb to the slaughter and I go up and see Bill, uh, Mr. Giles. And I said, look, the costume looks great. It fits awesome. But could you tell me what, <laughs> what you want me to do? And, and Steve, I swear to God, he went, he put his hand to his mouth and went, Hmm, like no one had even thought to ask. He just, it was the first time he figured out, well, we better tell him something. And, and then he saw the fear in my face and he went, well, wait, 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 wait. This is really easy. I just want you to go have fun. You know, and this is exactly what he said. I want you to have fun because if you're not having fun, you won't be funny. And if the fanatic isn't funny, it's not going to work in front of our fans. So just go have fun. So I, I'm like, great. I go tearing out of his office and he screamed at me, G-rated fun, David, G-rated fun. Cause I'm a college student. I'm like directive is to go have fun. I, he figured he, I better give me some editing advice. And it, and that was it. And I, I, I really believe that that advice was what set up the groundwork for allowing me to just do what I felt, which was fun, which that that in turn allowed me to build this personality that I thought would fit with Philadelphia fans. And then, of course, all my favorite Three Stooges episodes and my Warner Brothers cartoons that I loved. And I just mashed it all up because I was given the authority and the um, a permission to just go out and have a good time. Now, what was it like, though? You know, as you said, you've been a Phillies fan your whole life. Now you're in the vet, you know, the vet with that awful AstroTurf. And uh, and you're in the vet, and you're looking, and the place is probably pretty packed. I mean, it, the Phillies were had their lame years and their good years. I was following them all the time. But how do you? How would you sit there when you went, when you first stepped like did they introduce you did they say ladies no. and gentlemen or you just came out of nowhere and you're on top of the i mean i mean did you scare the crap out of some people i mean imagine you're watching a game and then a muppet is standing over you yes well there was yes so the the joke i heard from some of the executives a few weeks after we introduced the fanatic was 
they had made this kind of light announcement that something special was going to happen at the game on the on April 25th in 1978. And there was, for whatever reason, through media or whatever, some people got the idea that Frank Sinatra was going to sing the national anthem. So I always say in this at this story was those people were disappointed. <laughs> the rest of people didn't have any clue what was going on. And I, I came out, there was an entrance, um, the back of the, the Phillies executive office entrance had a door right on the 200 level. That if you walked out that door and went right straight across to the first vomitory, the first opening into the field in what was the 200 level, the lowest level, was uh, 232. And that section was where all the Phillies – uh, players' wives and girlfriends and families sat. It's where a lot of our executives would sit. So it was just a one section over from directly behind home plate. So I just went right out into that uh, area. Well, they all knew what was happening. They they knew, and it was, and they turned around like, oh, the fanatic. And so that you know bolstered my confidence. And then I just worked my way down the third base side of the stadium, which, if you remember. The old vet had a picnic area where actual picnic tables were in probably what would be the most some of the most premium seats. They had decided it would be great to have little picnics there. And I worked my way over there and I started jumping across the picnic tables, knocking over food. And then I leaped and grabbed on to the chain link fence like I was stuck Velcro, like a, you know, like a David Letterman routine. I just went and I just stuck on. And people could not believe that a costume that looked like it was somebody who was 390 pounds could move, let alone doing anything physical. So I started realizing when I tripped and fell, they laughed, whether it was on purpose or not. And when I did any sort of jumping over a railing or, or crawling up something or stepping over something else, they were like, Oh my gosh, look how nimble. <laughs> so I, I just, and then anything that I planned to be funny was always a flop in, in my in, in my early experience. So I, I stopped trying to be funny, and I just went out and naturally went with whatever they responded to. I did more of it, and whatever they didn't respond to, I figured they don't they don't like that or appreciate that. And and I just started to mold whatever was working. I kept doing. How long till it really started catching on? It's like anything, you know. I mean, when something's new. There is novelty. So you sit there and go, oh, this is great, you know. And then you sit there and sometimes you come, people come complacent. And then, you know, then you have to think of how to reinvent yourself. How long did it take you till you knew that this was a hit? I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure Mary Stu Stiles was pissed at you, the old ball girl. <laughs> but, um, I mean, how long till it was, uh, how long till you knew that you, like, you're like, okay, this, I got a future in this. Well, let, let me tell you, you, you hit on my very first motivation without recognizing this was going to be a benefit. Mary Sue Stiles had no freaking clue who the hell I was until I was the guy inside the costume. So when Mary Sue Stiles started paying attention to me, I'm like, this is going to be great. <laughs> so so that, was a, you know, that was a benefit that I never expected. And it, it very, very quickly, it, it became a, a fan favorite. In part because it was obviously unique and so unexpected. Because if you looked, at, if you were going to be, and you'd be perfect, Steve. If we went to you in 1978, before anybody knew what we were doing, and said, "Hey, Steve, this is going to be the Phillies' new mascot," would you have said, "Oh, that's a great idea"? You would have gone, "No, what are you nuts? That we can't be. It's got to be something tougher, and you know, like more like gritty." Which you know, that as you as we learn, we recognize that. 
you know, it probably should embody some of the passion of your fans, which is one of the reasons why Gritty was such a big success. But this looked like a soft, furry Muppet. How can that possibly be the mascot for the Phillies? So I think the uniqueness helped captivate their attention. And then for me, I was given carte blanche. So as soon as the third out was made in a particular inning and I was all the way over on the third base side, I said, I decided, well, it's much easier for me to get to the first base side to just jump over the railing and run across the field, which I did. Because, I mean, the umpires didn't know what was going on either. And, you know, for the love of all of my performance, Eric Gregg decided it was funny and he'd wiggle his hips at me and I, as I ran across the field. And then people realized, wow, the the umpires and the players are responding to this thing and they're waving or high five or tripping him or, or, you know, having some fun with him. And so the fact that I could, in essence, take the fans, you know, through that, through the wall uh, where they feel like they couldn't go and I actually would bring in there. And then one, one moment I'd be high-fiving a player and I'd jump in the fans and I'd be sitting next to your son or daughter. And you're like, wow, it was, it's almost like, you know, the, the person on stage that everybody wants to get a picture with was, is suddenly right there in your seats with you uh, with access to take a picture with them. And, and that's, I, I think that was the biggest thing was their feeling that I was part, I was just like a player or like a foul ball where where they could have access to something that would really be special and make their moment special. So everything I was doing from that first day until, and it continues today, that the fanatic is creating these little memorable moments that otherwise would not be available if he had not been created. So it was, that's what was so powerful about it. And you mentioned it being, what were you, the piece of corn or the carrot? You were the I carrot? Was, I, was the, I, would, no, I was the corn. I was the corn. So, the corn. so you recognize that even if you're dressed up as a piece of corn, that people are enamored with the fact that this corn is animated and they can have a picture or hug it. And, and I think that's the beauty of all mascots is they have an ability to distract us with this fun. And then uh, a benefit to your life is when you have these wonderful experiences, you remember them fondly. So that's what I, every time I get uh, some father who's got kids now who will tell me the moment that they first saw the fanatic and they, they remember it when at the smallest detail, including the smell, by the way, which was not very pleasant. We didn't figure that out until much later about how to make the fanatic smell a little bit better than he did after a few nights of sweat and, and no cleaning. What, what did the, how much did the outfit weigh? And did you have to work out? Because it's, it looks, you know, it's exercise. I mean, you think running across the field, people go, but even just running across the field as, Normal, some you know, is is your heart rate's rising? What, what were you on a workout regimen, and what did the outfit weigh? Well, the, the beauty of me again, this is these these are all the perfect storms. Again, this is this is right out of Malcolm Gladwell's um, outliers. That um, I had access, I had the ability to practice without really any uh, oversight, and I was physically prepared for it because I was an athlete. I just. And I also understood baseball. I understood baseball players. I knew their psyche. I knew I couldn't be fooling around with a guy getting ready to be a starting pitcher. I mean, I knew that ahead of time. I was a pitcher in baseball. You, the, that, that's worse than going and, and, and goosing the linebacker before a big football game. You, you, you know, there, I knew what I could do and what I shouldn't do. I knew where, where I would fit and where I wouldn't, and I was physically prepared for it. Nothing was tougher uh, than getting in that costume and doing any type of movement in the heat. But I had gone through double sessions in, in football season. I knew what it was like to be physically exhausted and still having having the need to perform under those circumstances. So I was prepared physically. Now, let me tell you something, 
Steve's uh, 16 years and then another 10 years of performing. So all 20, 26, 27 years of me working inside a costume in heat, I guarantee you it's helped my physical fitness today because I was tortured uh, physically. That was the hardest part of the job was overcoming the physical difficulties of the job. But, you know, so it was, it was only about 45 pounds, but it was hot, uh, physically taxing, but you know, like everything in life, you adapt to your circumstances and, and both emotionally and physically. And pretty soon it became the, the, the worst part of it was I had to take about three or four showers a day, you know, because I go do an appearance and then I had to dress up and go do something else out of costume. Then I had to go do another appearance. I got tired of showers. <laughs> that was the worst thing. Um, and then taking care of the costume was a pain, you know, dr- hanging it, drying it, disinfecting it. And over time, learning how to clean it. Those were all my responsibilities. But um, it, it just, it, it was the perfect storm of, uh, of you know, the, the conversion of great minds um, uh, some undiscovered talent in me that I didn't know would serve me well. And it all just, you know, it, it just flowed. It was, it was an absolute flow state. And I was, and I got to become a whole nother personality, which I, I see the benefit of some actors get a chance to disappear in a character that's nothing like them, um, or part of them and being able to exercise demons, uh, through playing a role. I, I had, that was a wonderful thing, a wonderful benefit that I didn't recognize until later in life that the Fanatics personality now, gave me. Now, you're a young guy. The Fanatics becoming more popular and more popular, but people don't know who you are. I mean, they don't. They don't you sit there because we're young, and yeah, I'm sorry, it's like anything. You're the Fanatic. People are going crazy. It's got to hit your ego a little bit. I don't care. You can be the most grounded person, but then you're saying, I'm the Fanatic, and then when you take it off, you're going... Nobody knows me. Like, if I went to a bar in a fanatic suit, they'd buy me a beer, they'd buy me dinner. No one knows who I am. And if I say I'm a fanatic, they're going to say, yeah, you're full of it. What was that like as a young guy? Because as you get older, you get over that. But as young, you know, you got that, you know, you're just sitting there and you're like, oh, man, you know, I'm the man. I mean, what was it like for you to balance it? Because it had to be taxing on your mind. No, there's no no question. But I'll tell you what. I mean, honestly, not to get too deep, but my, my father... Was, uh, was an amazing motivator. And he really taught me uh, some lessons that I don't think a lot of young people capture in today's world. And that is, look, you got to prove yourself first. You know, you, and, and he used to tell me, you know, Dave, your, um, your ability to communicate with people is, is natural. And I was 13 years old. He said, and it's going to serve you well later in life. And he said, many, very quickly after he said, now sit down and shut up, uh, which was beautiful because he's the one that got me a job that made me a mute. Uh, but it, I think that what I recognized early was there were some, because I was becoming friendly with the players and they used to tell me the struggles it was to try to sign autographs and do all that. And, and sometimes you were tired and that you couldn't always be, uh, you know, the ambassador that, that fans would expect or the type of person that you'd expect to be. So I recognized quickly that all I had to do, Steve, at the bar was to say, Hey, you know, I'm the fanatic and they would buy me whatever beer I wanted and they'd slap me on the back. And I, but, uh, and there was also beauty to be inside the costume, take it off and walk out of the, um, of the stadium and not be stopped. And, you know, I'd walk out with some of the players and they'd all be stopped for autographs and I'd just go right past and get in my car and go home. So it didn't take me long to realize that that notoriety was not, didn't carry uh, a lot of things that, uh, in, you know, made it difficult for you just to be normal. Uh, but I had enough friends, and uh, the Phillies were uh, were kind enough to allow me to do 
some uh, of my own promoting. And once they decided that I could say I'm the Fanatics' best friend, it also gave me a level of um, recognition that I could handle. Um, so I kind of had the best of both worlds. If I wanted to be a nobody, I didn't say anything. <laughs> but if I wanted to be let in first uh, at some opening of a new club, or if I wanted to get my buddies in somewhere where they might have had to pay, I just say, hey, you know, I, I'm the guy that's in the costume. Oh, oh, wait, aren't you Tubby's son? Yeah, come on in. <laughs> so that was always my one-two punch. You know, you either if you were the fanatic, you're Tubby's son, or if somebody, uh, you know, mentioned. Uh, uh, that I was a fanatic. They said, "Isn't your dad some really good football coach?" And so it was so I I could use it, Steve, to my benefit. But I, fortunately, because of my upbringing, I I didn't abuse it, and and it, it worked out really well for me. But I I do appreciate that struggle. Um, fortunately, I saw quickly that it was better to be anonymous than it was to be known. Now, what was it like when the Phillies won the World Series? Because you know you think about it. First of all. I, I, I knew a guy, an actor, uh, he was in Phantom of, Phantom of the Opera, and uh, he played Iago, I don't even know the role, he played for Raul, and he knew, he used to sing a lot, he knew Tony LaRusso, and one when the Cardinals were in town, uh, the trainer from the Cardinals came to this bar where me and this guy used to go, and I tried his, he let me try his World Series ring on, and it was just so huge, I mean, it just engulfed my hand, and I was just thinking, but it must have been such a fascinating experience to just feel that energy. What was it like for you? Because you were part of the team. I mean, you were the mascot, and they won. I mean, what was it like? Yeah, it was, I mean, you know, I obviously watching the um, the Super Bowl parade, All the, a lot of those memories came back to me. Um, but this was bigger, this was even bigger than 2008 in that the Phillies had never reached that level before. And so it was enormous. The, you know, uh, I, I got to experience, I traveled to Kansas City, um, I traveled to Houston in the, um, you know, in the National League Division Championship Series, still to this day considered one of the best National League Division Championship Series ever played. Um, so I got to be part of all of that. So when they won um, and this parade was going to happen, I first had to recognize that there was going to be work I was going to have to do. I was going to have to be part of this parade. So, and it, it just, it's hard to explain. And that's why the parade analogy does the best job. I arrive at the parade staging area and I, and, and Mr. Giles calls me over and said, look, and he was showing me there were these flatbeds and on the, the two or th first two or three flatbeds had uh, risers built on them and actually had sitting areas. And they said, we, I want you up there with the players and their families and their wives. And I, I looked at him and, and he said, why, what's wrong? I said, I said, Mr. Giles, this costume, after all of that work in the world series, this costume smells like a dog just had an accident. <laughs> I can't go up in those flatbed with the players are going to hate me. No one's, you know, it, it's just going to disrupt everything. I could, isn't there some place I can be where I don't have to negatively affect people on, on the flatbeds. And he said, well, actually we have two flatbeds here as backups. And right now everything's working the way we'd hope them to. So we're not going to use them. I'm going to put one of those flatbeds in the back of the parade and the fanatic can be on that. It'll be perfect. We, and he said, we saved the best for last. So I had this unique uh, ability to see the wake of humanity that were all Philadelphia fans that were longing for a championship. Um, you know, the, the Flyers had had two Stanley Cups, but, but the NHL hockey had not become what it is today. So it was still baseball and football were the two big sports. 
And there had to be a couple hundred, maybe a quarter of a million people that were filing in behind that parade to follow it to JFK Stadium, where they all filed in there, almost filled that stadium full of 100,000 people to, you know, hear the speeches. So I'm on that thing, and I'm just, I'm trying to stay in character. But I'm also a Philadelphia fan, and I'm watching this sea of humanity. And I, one story I love to tell, which, which is, shows you that everyone just wanted to have some connection. So you go to that parade to show your gratitude, to celebrate the victory. But, you, but if you had a chance to have one of the players look at you or throw you something or wave to you, that, that was something you cherish forever. So I saw this young man, probably 25, 26-year-old. He had his five-year-old son on his shoulders, as, as parents might do. And he's pushing through the crowd to try to get to the end of my flatbed and he had something in his hand. And I just assumed it was a note or a card that he wanted to give the fanatic from his son. His son is crying, but he can't hear his son crying because the son's getting bumped around in the, the massive humanity. And I started worrying for his son. So I rushed to the end of the thing and I reached out and I grabbed what he gave me. And then he was swallowed up by the crowd. And as he, as he was backing away from the crowd, I realized he recognized his son was crying. He pulled him down in his arms and comforted him. And I'm like, good, great. I took care of him. Then I looked at what he gave me. It was his Pennsylvania license. And his name was Dave Raymond. And all he wanted to do was show me that his name was the same as mine. That was his connection. Meanwhile, I've got, the Fanatic's got his license. And there was, a, there was a cop on horseback, and he goes, yo, Fanatic. He had seen what happened. He said, give it to me. So I gave it to him, and I could see him riding in his horse to go give this poor guy's license because he didn't realize what he had actually done. And that's why he's, he had a distressed look on his face, but then he comforted his son. I'm, I'm like, that is such a beautiful, uh, you know, demonstration of somebody's passion they just want people to know that i'm connected in some way you you know you made my year um and it, so i i just it's that's the story that i tell always about the the, uh, the 1980 world series and there's many of them including catching a baseball that was in play that tug mcgraw threw um, at the end of the kansas city game in kansas city before that was the fifth game of the world series i've got it up on my credenza here and, and tug signed it for me and you know he was one of my best friends and and my best relationships but nothing was like that parade that i was I, I was at that parade i was sitting in jfk so um, you can well you know you know you get you know what it's like that's why you want to be there now i'm gonna ask you what what's your beef with lasorda I, i've heard he's just i lived in LA. he's just a grumpy old man but what, what happened there? Because that's like legendary. And you did nothing wrong. You were just doing your job. Well, first of all, let me say on the positive note, um, no one's done more for baseball throughout our world than Tommy Lasorda. He's been able to be this ambassador. And, and I know that his health is failing a little bit, and it will be a sad day when we lose him. But he was the manager of the Dodgers and one of our hated rivals that the Dodgers in Cincinnati were the two teams that kept keeping us away from that until we finally broke through in 1980. Um, and, you know, her, some horrific memories of, uh, you know, Gary Maddox dropping a line drive in, in Dodger Stadium. I, I was there when that happened. And, it, you know, just all those horrible memories. And then you had a guy, you got a Philadelphian. This guy was born and bred in Philadelphia, um, in Norristown, Pennsylvania. His brother still managed and operated a bar all those years there. He would come back and do, you know, yet he 
you know, he became Hollywood, right? He's Tinseltown. He's got pictures with Frank and you know, the Rat Pack and all the, you know, blah, blah, blah. All the things that would make us as Philadelphia people with our insecurities on our sleeve, you know, just dislike him immensely. <laughs> so I, my job as the fanatic was to embody that passion. So uh, I had the fortune of meeting him in Japan and when the fanatic was taken on, on the tour of Japan and, and he loved the fact that the fanatic would get a rise from the crowd. And in Japan, he was a legend. So if I would follow behind him and kind of mock his funky walk with his little belly, the, the Japanese fans would go crazy. He'd turn around and slap me and they would roar with approval. So we started, you know, I started realizing he liked that. And I met with him and talked to him and he was very nice to me. He knew my dad and was always asking how my dad was doing. And Chuck Tanner was, was the bench coach with that tour. And, you know, Chuck Tanner uh, went to, um, a university, it's escaping my name, but it'll come to me, um, that played my dad in a couple of playoffs games and, and world and national championship games for my dad's team. So, you know, I had all this affection. Um, and then when we came home, I figured when Tommy Lasorda would come to Veterans Stadium, we could just play that stuff out again. Well, then I realized he wasn't too happy with that. He didn't want to do that anymore. Yet I, when I did it, I got all kinds of great feedback from the Phillies fans. So I continued to do it more and more and more. And the tipping point was when he and uh, Hershiser had decided to lose weight and challenge each other to who could lose the most weight. And Slim Fast came on as a sponsor. So I would stuff this dummy, made him look like hundreds of pounds, and I would come out and beat the dummy up in front of the dugout in the fifth inning. And on this particular uh, road trip, he hadn't eaten pasta like in two weeks. So he was out of his mind. And I pushed one more button, and he came charging out and grabbed the dummy from me and beat the heck out of me. Almost knocked the fanatic's head off of me. That would have been awful. Um, and that is the – that's – you know, forever, that'll be on YouTube. I mean, anybody wants to do it, just type in Fanatic versus Lasorda, and you'll see that clip, and it's absolutely hysterical. And so the final thing, to, to make a long story longer, the next day after this mayhem, he's telling the media that the Fanatic is violent. Meanwhile, he charged out on the field in front of 30,000 fans and beat the crap out of a Muppet. And it, I, I, you know, so I'm not, so Stan Hockman writes a story and, you know, a uh, Hall of Fame writer. And Stan writes in the story that both of us were acting like children, like babies. And we should, you know, wake up and stop, you know, wasting times and do what we're supposed to do. I called Stan Hockman up the next day. I went, wait a second. Who's doing their job? Me, as the fanatic, entertainer fans, or the manager of the Dodgers? Please. I mean, and t and. All I remember hearing was Stan chuckling and then hanging up on me. And all I could think about was Stan was like, well, look at what's happened to my career. <laughs> I'm, so I, you know, for me, it was, it's, it's one of my fondest memories and Tommy and I have made up and, you know, I bought him some food the next time he was in town and, you know, but he'll still tell you that he thought the fanatic was violent and doesn't deserve to be in baseball. <laughs> So you're getting, it's very busy. I know, you know, you were very busy with the personal appearances and the games. How does that affect your personal life? And is that what eventually made you leave being the fanatic? No, I, I left. It, it was always marvelous. I mean, you know, um, I, I, you know, it was, it's a, it was a blessed career and everything that I've done well in business has been really because of this affection 
that the Philadelphia fans have bestowed upon me. Um, and, and I get, and I'm blessed with being credited with creating this personality that continues to build baseball fans and do wonderful things in the community. So, so I, I was just uh, amazingly blessed, but physically, Steve, I couldn't keep doing it. And the beauty of my job and being able to get compensated well was all born out of my ability to do that work physically. And it took over. I had no other responsibilities. It, I, I, I was learning the business without recognizing I was learning the business, but I, I, I didn't really, I don't, I didn't have a position when I would retire, the Phillies would say, thank you very much. And maybe they would say, here, here's your job in marketing. And then I had no ability to drive the same type of revenue that I had grown obviously to appreciate. So I realized that the best thing for me to do would be to leave the Phillies when I still was capable and build my own business and my own character where I would own the rights to that character. And then I could figure out a way to, you know, extricate myself from being a performer and being a business owner and owning the rights to the character, which I had no rights in the fanatic and nor did I feel like I um, deserved it. I mean, this was copyright law. You couldn't, you couldn't expect to, you know, own that costume just because you wore it for all those years. So I left because of business reasons um, and found it to be the greatest move I could have ever made because then, you know, I was able to do just that, build a career, with the things I had learned and the things that I knew were valuable and leverage those into, um, uh, or these assets into a business that I was able to, you know, be able to raise a family. And I've been fortunate enough to do that. And it was a good move. I, there never a day goes by though, where I don't miss the Philadelphia fans, but when I meet them and I do every day, you know, uh, of my life, I just get all that love and affection. So I, I'm lucky. And I'm lucky to have that. That's been the most important thing, much more than any money I earned doing it. Well, okay, this is a question that, you know, I talk to a lot of musicians. And when their band breaks up and they go solo, it's completely different. You know, they're not touring. They're not another thing. For you, were you get it? Were you, when you stop being the fanatic, you're so used to being the fanatic. How long did it take you to actually acclimate to a normal life and then actually sit there and go, wait a second. I don't have an appearance to do today. I don't have a game to go today. Wait a second. I, I can sit home, and that sounds great, but when you're always busy and when you sit home, you're like, what the hell am I going to do? Yeah, well, that, you know, that, that's a, that did happen to me, but it was, when I transitioned out, I, I actually created a character. I had partners, and my job was to travel all over the country and work at minor league sporting events. So not only did I have – and there were one – so very much like a traveling band. That's a, I, you know, I could commiserate with any traveling musician, because I know exactly what you did. You're, you're staying in crappy hotels. Well, and, and t unless you, you know, until you made it, but you're in crappy hotels, uh, a little one horse towns. Uh, I'm, I'm working in front of anywhere from a hundred people to 10,000 people. That was the most. Um, and I got a chance to travel all these places, but I never got to see any of these places. Cause I had to, I had to go in, work my butt off, go crash for a few hours, jump in, get a plane and go to the next town from Yakima, Washington, um, you know, to Jupiter, Florida, and, and you know, uh, uh, and everywhere in between, Corpus Christi, Texas, and uh, Bemidji, Bemidji, um, oh gosh, I can't even say it, um, North Dakota, I mean, you, you name it, I've been there. Um, so that was a whirlwind, and I was uh, building a business with partners, um, and then eventually when I bought that business from my partners and then started Raymond Entertainment, 
a year later, so uh, 26 years of performance, a year later, I found a young person who I had trained who took over for me. Then we had to tell people, look, it's not going to be me anymore. But they knew Chris. Chris Bruce was his, is his name, and we're still very close friends. And he went and took, my, took over my performance. And that wasn't until I was able to stay at home and I didn't have to travel. And by then, Steve, I'm like, thank the Lord. I'm done with that, you know, um, and I had a blast. Trust me. I mean, I'd gone, I went through a divorce, you know, I, I, I was traveling all over the place, meeting all kinds of different people and I had a, a blast, but let me tell you something. When, when you, when you've done that for, you know, for 10 years of your life and then you, and missing people's birthday parties and my kids were young and I was missing some of the times they were having. And then I got home. I was, I was so glad I, I had a business finally where I didn't have to perform to earn a living and it, it was marvelous. So I, again, I was lucky. Um, and I had the support, you know, of, of, a you know, of a young family. Uh, this was after my, my first, my marriage training program had failed. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, I learned a little bit and I was building the family and it's, and, and that is, they're still, they're my why today. Everything I do is for my family. And, and I'm, I've just been lucky, very, very lucky. Now tell me about gritty. It's funny, you know, I have a little gritty bobblehead. My wife got me one. And what fascinates me about gritty is, you know, you watch, I watch Pardon the Interruption, PTI. There's a gritty thing behind there. John Oliver has gritty on all the time. I think gritty's been on, I think he's been on um, Colbert. I mean, he's just blown up. And, and, you know, living in L.A. for years, Bailey was the mascot. And Bailey sucked. I'm sorry. At first of all, I'm thinking, why do they have a dog when it's the Los Angeles Kings? Or no, it was a lion. Oh, it's the king of the jungle. But yeah, there like, you go. I knew you were going to get it. <laughs> but I was like, we, we met him, me and my buddies met him one time, and he sort of seemed like a jerk. I'm like, you're no fanatic. And uh, what was, how, how did the gritty come about? I mean, because your company was developing mascots. Well, we had a call uh, from, from Joe Heller uh, almost a full year before we started working for them, and he said, look, we've had enough of not having character break you know what and he said the defining moment was being at the super bowl parade and or not not at the parade but when the when the uh, uh when the eagles arrived at the airport and every team had their mascot there and once again the flyers were not represented in that way and and they had had a change over in the organization had a lot of young people that were in authority roles so sean tilger was the was the president of of operations and he was really aggressively for the idea so they just said we have to wait for the timing to be right and when they brought me in we had our first meeting i I always call i call it a mascot intervention we're going to sit down and talk about the right way to do this and i my opening salvo was i just want everybody in the room to understand one thing we could recreate all of the success of the fanatic let's just say we could snap our fingers and we got it we, it's going to be amazing. And when we uh, introduce it, universally, it's going to be not disliked, but hated. And everybody in this room is going to have a bunch of arrows shot at them, including myself. Like, what the, What were you drinking? What were you thinking? What were you doing? And they all shook their heads. They had big smiles on their face. Yep, we know. We know, but that doesn't matter. Because we're doing this. We're not doing this for the hardcore hockey fans. We've got to build new Flyers fans with the same passion and we've been missing out on this. So we don't care about them. And and then as we worked through this, I started hearing much like what I saw on that first drawing. The comments were, well, we don't want to scare kids, but we don't want kids to come running up and hug us either. I'm like, uh oh, <laughs> they're they're serious about being unique and different. And um, 
I tried really hard to give them drawings that they, you know, my creative people were creating versions after version after versions, and they kept saying, I don't know, he's not, uh, and I didn't know this was coming from Sean until Sean and I became friends uh, a few years later and, and spent some time together. He was the one who kept saying, now it's got to be uglier, it's got to be tougher, it's got to be crazier. And I was out of options. And Joe Heller said, hey, I've got this young designer that, um, that does these monsters. He's good at this. And he said, do you mind if we bring him in? I said, no. That's what a collaboration is, right? No one gives – there's no ego. I didn't – at that point, I didn't care whether our designer made them happy. I just wanted to get them to success. And I, I believed what they were saying. We just were a little bit too frightened. They weren't frightened. This guy uh, – Brian Allen from Flyland Designs comes in and he put a couple of drawings down in front of us and we're like, that's it. That's it. I mean, he'd done some other versions before I saw what, what he was doing. And I was said, that's it. I love it. That's amazing. Um, and that's how Gritty was created. So, you know, my organization, what we do is we get people to understand what they should be doing and that this needs to be a collaborative effort. And we all have to be invested in getting to yes that's all our job is get you to yes because once we get you yes if we've done all the things that we've instructed you to do and you follow that then the output doesn't have to be our creation or my creation it has to be our creation and that's what we did and that why that's why it was successful everybody was yes this is it and we know you know we know the fuselage we're going to have to uh, fend off um but it's going to be our guy and 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 to a certain extent, they didn't care what anybody thought because it was going to be their guy. You know, it's like you have a, you know, you have a little uh, messy, ugly brother and you love him. And when people start telling you he's messy and ugly, you punch him in the nose. They leave my brother alone. And that's what that's what the Flyers did. This was kind of like their ugly, you know, son or daughter that people started making fun of. And they were like, ah, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Did you guys ever, I mean, fathom how much he would blow up like his twitter i mean he just had so many twitter followers blowing everybody away you know and people i mean on tv that's the most random thing of flyers mascot on john oliver as i said it's so weird it's like what and then yeah. just you see him i mean do you guys think that it would just no i nobody any anybody including sean would be lying if they thought that type of success they were hoping for one 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 hundredth of that success and they would have been happy that it that it became an effective tool to build flyers fans young flyers fans but i I knew we were in for success when i was there at the please touch museum they did a beautiful job introducing him with a zamboni and smoke and high level music and about 400 uh, elementary school students and he came out and danced and high five they gave t-shirts away the one thing i noticed was there was not one single child running away in terror. Every appearance I ever did in any costume, there was for an elementary school group, there was always one or two kids running, screaming, crying to get out, and they had to be ushered away. None of them were doing that, and I was surprised by that. And then I, I see Joe Heller with some of his uh, senior people giggling and laughing. I go, what? And they showed me uh, a tweet, and the tweet was, he sucks, I hate him. <laughs> Because it was being live streamed. So, and they're laughing. And then I see Sean Tilger is doing some media. 
And I'm thinking, well, let's see what Sean says. So Sean comes over and looks at it, and he, this, he goes, not very creative. We only share the creative ones. <laughs> so, so, when, so my favorite one that they shared was a, a, an Instagram post where it had a, a picture along the one side of the Instagram post that was on the top was a picture of the abominable snowman from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And then on the bottom was Yukon Cornelius. And then on the side was a picture of Gritty with a with a banner slashed across "Use Birth Control," <laughs> which was a suggestion that Gritty was the love child of Yukon Cornelius and the Abominable Snowman. I, you couldn't make that up. Now that's that, that they were fearless. That's the big thing. The, the Flyers, and it's hard for a big organization to be fearless with their brand. You know that this might ruin us. You know and. But that is the secret. And that's what I preach to corporations when they want to get involved in this. And there aren't very many that have the ability to be fearless because they feel like they have too much at risk. Their brand is too important. Um, and, and I've seen the ones that show fear early in the process, I might as well quit. I might as well stop because I've, I've pushed forward with those and they are never a success. And we, you know, we've had some failures along the way, but it, it, it has, the organization has to realize how important fun is and that you have to be serious about that fun for it to work for you. And if you're not, and you're scared, it didn't work. That's exactly what happened to the, um, the Sixers first try, um, where, um, you know, they just weren't, they weren't ready to be fearless and that didn't work. I don't like the Sixers mascot either. A dog, what is the blue dog? I, I don't, it, it irritates me. I just, I'm like, what, why is there a blue yeah. dog? But that that type of response is actually good. But I wouldn't tweet it. I wouldn't tweet it to dog. I did tweet it gritty gritty today. But okay, so you've you've done all this stuff. You've done. You've been a Philly fanatic. You've been different mascots. You've been creating mascots. Tell me about power of fun. Well, it it was. Um, I believe. I honestly believe, Steve, that you know. I I have uh, some faith in my life, and I really believe. Everything that's happened to me, good and bad, has put me in a position where I'm able to deliver a message that I think, and especially now, that we all really need. And it's it, what I taught. What I learned was that being the fanatic was actually a really powerful benefit to me by disappearing into this personality. And um, you know, my mom. You know, I talk about my dad being my hero, but my mom. You know, she we we stood on her we stood on her giant shoulders. Um, she went deaf when she was 29, lost all of her hearing to Meniere's syndrome. And, um, you know, she didn't complain. She didn't make it something that seemed to be what would be considered a handicap. She continued to be a great mom. And then she reinvigorated her whole career by getting a degree in counseling, becoming a certified interpreter for the deaf, and counseling young deaf kids in Delaware and making them realize, listen, you know, being deaf is not a handicap to stop you from being a whole person. And she, at 59, she was diagnosed with a glioblastoma brain tumor. And, you know, the doctor told us as a family that she had eight months to live. And she was an old school woman. You know, she died almost eight months to that day. And during the same time period, you know, in the throes of the fanatic, um, my, my, my marriage training program, my first marriage started falling apart. And I was really into a hopeless state. I'm like, you know, that's where bad decisions happen. And the fanatic's personality saved me. I was ready to quit my job, tell the Phillies I couldn't do this anymore. And instead, I had a few appearances during this time that I had to do because they were on the schedule. And then I started realizing, hey, I feel better after these things. And I told the Phillies, don't don't cancel any more appearances. I'm in. And it truly saved my life. 
So what, what I've done recently is just um, in the last few years is kind of deconstructed that into a process that we can follow. Um, and there's science behind this, that we are in charge of our own happiness. And what we need to make a distinction between is what, what gives us a boost of happiness as opposed to what is sustainable in terms of our level of happiness. And that's what I'm, that's what I teach and preach. I live it. I breathe it. I teach it. I preach it. And that's the power of fun. And it's what the fanatic taught me and what all of us can learn for zero cost. That if we practice this daily, which is, which is the issue, because we know what practice, practice, practice means in Philadelphia with a little bit of practice and effort and commitment, we can overcome challenges and then use the same process to, to be sustained, to sustain happiness in our lives and to thrive. Um, Cause it worked for me. I, you know, there's a lot of people in Harvard that studied this, Steve. I, I lived it, man, feet to the fire uh, with no idea what the heck I was doing. And the result of that was this wonderful message that uh, I just absolutely love to speak to corporate America, but to college students and athletics and, and um, high school students. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to a wide different range of, of audiences because everybody wants to hear how they might be able to use this to be happier. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? We got to go soon. I no, want, I want to talk to you for another two hours. I want, I want, I want you to, I'm going to ask you three instances and I want you to give me an honest answer. I want you to answer what was one of the most touching things that ever happened to you as a fanatic? What was one of the funniest things that ever happened to you as a fanatic? And what was the one, the most hateful, most hate you felt towards oh. the fanatic? Oh, I got, I got the answer. So, so what was the, what was the most, uh, touching, uh, touching was, was I had a, I had a guy bang on my van. My van looked like the fanatics home on wheels and it was beautiful because you could dress in there. You, I could, I could turn from Dave Raymond into the fanatic without anybody losing, you know, the sense of suspension of belief. And people would always bang on the door. Well, I'd never open the door because it was some mother with her kids that wanted to see the fanatic. And I, I was disembodied. I couldn't, you know, do that. So um, I never answered those knocks. Well, one, one day I was, I heard this pounding on the door. I was right in center city, Philadelphia during the holidays. And I, for some reason I opened the door. It was a young man about 28, 29 years old. And he, he jumps into the van. I let him come into the van. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm breaching all kinds of protocol. And I go, he said, I'm embarrassed. And I said, don't be embarrassed. There's a lot of adults who are fanatics fans. He goes, no, I, I just left the, my son's hospital room. He, he, had, he had what we thought was a benign brain tumor removed a day ago, and he's not responding. And when I, I left, I left my wife sitting in the hospital room, and I, I, I couldn't believe I was doing that until I came around the corner and saw you as the fanatic get into the van. I went, that's perfect. My son's a huge Phillies fan. Can't you please, you know, follow me into the hospital room. I said, let's go. And I did it, you know, breaking again, all kinds of rules. You can't just walk into a hospital without being approved. Walked into his room. His son's hooked up with all kinds of tunes. And the kid pops up out of bed and goes, it's a fanatic. The mother shrieks. She starts crying. The doctors come in. What the heck are you doing? And I left there with a pat on the back saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. Thank you so much. You're amazing. You're wonderful. And I'm leaving there with these people in tears because their son, you know, responded. And I'm thinking, I just showed up. I just showed up. And that's that was the power of being in that costume. All right. Now, the most embarrassed was the next one. The, the funniest. The funniest uh, thing. Oh, we're we're, we're going to add embarrassed to it. Three. Uh, well, this is funny and embarrassing. So 
I, of course, did thousands and thousands of appearances. And, and most of the time, if I wasn't dressing in that van, I had to come into a building. They put me into a, a, what was supposedly a secure dressing area. And that was a constant mess. Like, you can go to the men's bathroom. No, I can't ch- change it. It's got to be a secure area. So I was doing an elementary school evening function for parents and their kids. And they took me down the corridor and said, here, uh, Mrs. So-and-so's uh, room. You can change in her. She's she's our new, uh, she just graduated college last year. She's our new teacher. So she's 23 years old. And she's one of our favorite teachers. You, The fanatic, you'll be able to see her tonight. You go in there and change. So when I go change, I got to get right into my birthday suit. You know, So I'm I'm there taking the last stitch of clothing off, ready to go reach to put on my the, stuff that I wear under the costume and the door opens the, uh, the front light comes on because I was in the back of the room and there's this young 23 year old teacher staring at me completely naked and she stopped and she looked head to toe and she said oh now I know what the fanatic really looks like turns around and walks out of the room I'm, meanwhile I'm like you know I've got my hands covering things and I and I just started to laugh I, I mean I had to because it was the funniest and most embarrassing. And she had the great, you know, you talk about comedic timing. She just did it perfectly. Took, took an eyeful and just said, okay, now I know what the fanatic really looks like. And I'm like, don't tell anybody. <laughs> so, and then my, uh, the one where I was the, got the most um, hey. r- rage. At, oh, hey, hey, um, people were pissed at you or just. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I don't know what I was thinking, but I was invited after the San Diego chicken. There was a period of time where he left um, the the Padres and went out on his own. So he was no longer doing the Padres games. So the Padres are suddenly without this entertainment that their fans always expect. So what they decided to do was invite other performers to come in and try to bridge that gap. They asked me as a fanatic to come to San Diego. Now, I'm going into somebody's home whose favorite uncle that always made them laugh has just up and left and left the family. And now I show up and go, hey, I'm going to entertain you. So I walked out and the entire upper deck is filled with military personnel. And they start screaming, we want the chicken. We want the chicken. And they're booing me. And I'm, you know, I'm walking out in the midst of this thinking I have to figure out something and I know that people on the podcast are not going to be able to appreciate this, but I got so angry in the midst of it. I, you know, the up yours sign. I start doing the, as the fact, I'm doing the up yours sign. And as soon as I get to the final move of the up yours, I throw my hand up there and I wave it. I'm like, hi. And I just was doing it all the way around the stadium. And all of a sudden you hear the, we want the chicken slowly start to fade. Then they start cheering. And then they start saying, we want the fanatic. And I went up there and they, it was in the upper deck and they passed me, crowd surfed me all the way to the top of the stadium. So that was the most anger I ever got. And, but I was able to win them over by being a little bit inappropriate that I was not G rated fun on that day. Now with the fanatic, how did you make the nose come out? What? It was, a, it was actually a party favor, Steve, that um, had a little tube that ran up from my mouth up into the the mouth of the fanatic or the nose and i would uh, blow on that tube and it would just stick the party favor out it was a one of the most inexpensive um uh special effects that you could ever imagine and it was perfect because it worked and and it was funny 
what do you, and a final question, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to. What did you think of the restyling of the new Fanatic? Does it does it hurt you in the heart? Because it's it's it was you, man. That's like that's like me yeah, when I had I, hair, and then people saw me bald, and people <laughs> I didn't see me since high school. They're like, I know a girl put to me. She wrote, "Oh my God, Cooper, you had such gorgeous hair in high school. What happened?" Well, I, I have to tell you, and most people don't know, and I don't surprise you that, that you don't know, but I was hired because it, we were required in order to fight this lawsuit. We were required. Um, the copyright law is very clear about what can be done after 35 years. And, and so what we had to do was show that we, you know, we could change the fanatic because we had to be told about it a year in advance. And then they had a year to do whatever they wanted to do. And so this, this concept of, of working on, you know, um, changes that we had already done anyway from the original design and, and we had to fight for our fanatic. And so the work that I did was defined by that struggle. But we also said, look, we can, we know improving the fanatic is a lost cause, but what we want to do is let's make some changes and see if they've got a good storyline that they fit. And, and really, I think we, it, it was not, it was the only time in my business career I was bummed about getting um, a major league team to want to work with us because it, um, you know, because it wasn't a fun thing to do. I mean, it was, we we're going to have to change the fanatic. It's not an iconic vision. And I think what we ended up with was a really wonderful version that does not look so distinctly different, but at the same time, it looks different. What, I, what I'm hoping is, is that cooler heads will prevail and eventually they'll come to some understanding and we'll get our original fanatic back. And, and that's part of what's going on. And, and, you know, when lawyers get involved, you know what happens? The fun killers are in charge. We, it, it, it hurts some of the fun, but we need them and they're, they're doing their work. So I got my fingers crossed that we'll, we'll be able to see uh, the fanatic as we love him to be returned. Great. Well, you know, I want to thank you for taking uh, time today, Dave. Uh, people go, go to Dave Raymond speaks.com. That's where you can find his power of fun. Also go to Raymond eg.com that's the brand the branding company uh how else can people do you tweet does it i mean do you yeah i i'm very active on social media um instagram is uh is is dave raymond speaks um and i have a great following on on facebook kind of shows my age uh at just my my at dave raymond um and i'm on twitter at, at emperor uh, of fun. So, uh, I, and I'm active and they, they all are really u- about fun, but you know, there's all kinds of fanatic references and, and I've got a really nice following. I, I, I'm certainly not what you might call an influencer, but I, I, I've got my thousands of fans from Philadelphia, which is the most important thing. And that's what I can. So people go check Dave out, go YouTube some old fanatic stuff. You'll enjoy it. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 830 episodes. Uh, email me cooper, coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at CooperTalk. Instagram, I'm at CooperTalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.